You're listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live monthly show in Los Angeles, California, where folks read their letters on stage. Real letters they've written, letters they've received, correspondence back and forth, improvised letters based on audience suggestions, and letters we wish we could write. Hey, goodbye yesterday, I wake up tomorrow and wash it away. Sarah McChesney reads a letter addressed to her eighth grade bullies. So this is a letter I wish I could write. Dear 8th grade bullies, hey guys, what's up? Probably not a lot since none of you graduated above a 2.0 and all work at the local volunteer fire department. Anyway, I'm writing to you not about your general torturous behavior all through middle school, but about one day in particular, the day I got my period and you all made fun of me and made my life hell for the rest of the year. I remember it like it was yesterday. There I was, sitting in Mrs. Russell's math class, not feeling great. It was a feeling that would become very familiar to me over the years, but at that point was still fairly new. As I sat there, avoiding learning anything about fractions, I suddenly realized why I wasn't feeling well. And not only did I realize why, I also realized that I wasn't prepared. I was mortified. The bell rang to change classes, and I sat frozen in my seat, afraid to get up in case anyone saw what had undoubtedly happened to the back of my pen. So I sat there, pretending to rifle through my math book, and then stacking and unstacking my books until everyone left the room. I thought to myself, if I can just make it to my next class and sit down as fast as I can, no one will notice. Never mind that this was second period, and there was an entire day to get through. At that moment, I was like a soldier trying to get across enemy territory. Only the immediate moment mattered. I slipped into the hallway, books held tightly to my chest like a shield, walking as quickly as possible so that no one would get close enough to see the back of my very light blue jeans. I was halfway to my destination, actually thinking I would make it unscathed. And that, eighth grade bullies, is where you came in. You rounded the corner like three hyenas, loud, ugly, and unkempt. My heart raced, I quickened my step, but a gaggle of seventh grade girls obstructed my path. And there, trapped, lay my fate. You gained ground until your prepubescent male voices filled my ears with five dreaded words. Look, she got her period. You giggled, yes, you giggled, and whispered loudly behind me. I heard every word, and with each word, I shrank inside, smaller and smaller. And so, of course, once you got to your next class, probably shop, you told everyone. (laughs) And by the end of that day, there was not one person at Hampton Middle School, teachers included, who did not know that Sarah McChesney, age 12, Caucasian, had had her period. (laughs) Look, I get it. It would have been impossible for three preteen boys with the combined brain power of a handicapped donkey not to laugh and tell everyone you knew. But here's what I don't get. Out of all the things you could have called me, all the options under the sun to do with periods, menstruations, or just being a girl, why, why did you decide on the nickname Red Bucket? (laughs) Red Bucket. What the hell is that? It's not even really insulting. I remember walking down the halls and you yelling, hey, Red Bucket, what's up, Red Bucket? Going to class, Red Bucket? And I would think to myself, what does that even mean? Is it a literal translation where the bucket itself is red? 
Or are you implying that there was so much leakage in my jeans that you could have filled a bucket? Because for the record, you couldn't. And here's the thing about nicknames that don't make sense. No matter how cruel or funny you think they are, they don't stick. Your attempt at branding me with an embarrassing label for the rest of my school years didn't work because it just wasn't catchy. And while I congratulate you on the usage of two words in a row, from a historical standpoint, insulting nicknames are a single word. And no, Red Bucket is not hyphenated. So, dear eighth grade bullies, I do hope that you enjoyed your four months of ridiculing me as Red Bucket, because when we graduated middle school and entered into our high school years, no one remembered your ridiculous nickname. And in a delicious turn of irony, one of you, the worst of you, got fat and earned your own nickname, Roly Poly John John. It's not one word, but it sure is catchy. I know that because for four years, it was the only name you had. Love, Sarah. Jonathan Bradley Welch reads a letter to an 80s icon. So about two years ago, I was living in New York, and I was going through a period very similar to um, a period I'm going through now where I felt not necessarily unsexy or unattractive. Well, kind of unattractive, I guess. And so I developed what I like to call a time machine crush. Uh, maybe you've had them before where you see like a Civil War photograph, and you're like, oh my god, you're so hot. Um, and I developed it on a singer from a 1980s British soft rock band called Breathe, and his name is David Glasper. And here's my letter to David. Good evening, David. You don't know me, but I know you. Just the other day I was working from home, which is code for working in my underwear and likely sexting most of the day with various gentlemen callers. I'm busy. One of your jams, How Can I Fall, popped into my head, as so many 1980s love ballads are wont to do. Without hesitation, I turned to YouTube to take a listen and get it out of the stuck position in my brain. I worked writing copy for a client, and when I wanted to go back to repeat the song as it was just one minute to the end, I saw it. I saw your face. Now, I felt this emotion before, David, and it wasn't foreign to me, so I said it out loud alone in my room. My God, I, I love you, I'm, I'm in love with you. Now, love is a periodic emotion for me, David. I've, I've been in love a few times before, so I know the familiar pangs that tingle in your loins. Do men have loins? Men have loins, right? I can't be sure, really. But I feel this connection, a sensation. I wanted to know everything about you and find where you are today. After all, How Can I Fall came out in 1988, a follow-up to 1987's Hands to Heaven. Where are you now? Your dark blonde tresses and boy-next-door looks mixed with British wit could only get better with the passage of time, like a fine smoked meat cured to perfection. <laughs> or could it? It couldn't. Seeing that today you battle mental demons in the years since your fame has come and gone, I judge not, and that you periodically disappear into remote regions of Thailand for months at a time, 
I know fully well that this letter isn't actually directed to a modern-day David Glasper, but it's more a time machine love note to the David that existed in 1988. Should it matter that I was five then? Nah. It isn't realistic to fall in love with a man who was at the height of his career when you weren't tall enough to access the cabinets in any standard kitchen. And really, none of this is realistic. It isn't realistic to swoon over someone you've never met who existed as a moment in time 25 years ago, which is really all any of us are, moments in time. If we had the ability to transcend time and space, which we don't have time to discuss in this one-sided correspondence, then love connections would be infinite, wouldn't they? But that isn't realistic either. I can't save you from your fate as a disgruntled former British heartthrob living in the jungle with a poor tattoo choice. And you can't come to my rescue and be the perfect man based on just one music video. Okay, maybe a few music videos and some interviews I found on YouTube. But all of these things were, as I said, moments in time. That's the reason I will never actually send this letter to you. It can't reach 1988 after all, and besides, I'm incredibly self-aware and know that this would come off a little strange. Similar letters sent to people like Brooke Shields and Jodie Foster resulted in assassination attempts on President Reagan's life, and I am not into being a part of that category. Also, you're straight. But, you know, I want to thank you, David Glasper. I want to thank you for creating soft rock love ballads that peppered my childhood and remained in my ear for a quarter century. I want to thank you for reminding me that it's important to date. It's important to get out there and meet men, real men, gay men, regardless of whether or not they have the ability to seduce via music video. You see, your face and your video and your music came to me at a time when I was hitting a dating lull. Not to say that I'm a hopeless romantic, but maybe I am just a little romantic. And so said love songs are often running through my head when I encounter that periodic emotion of love that I was discussing earlier. So, so it's okay. It's okay that you are frozen in time. Your hopeful glee forever encapsulated in four minutes, 11 seconds on YouTube. I'm going to go out now and find me a man. As I leave you, back in 1988 where I found you, I do hope that that version of you today is doing well living in the jungles of Thailand and that you can live with that terrible tattoo. All my best, a gay man in New York City you will never ever meet. Thank you. Christine Schoenwald reads a purloined letter from an angry ex. So this letter was never sent to me or emailed to me. It was stolen and hand-delivered to me. <laughs> Let me explain. So my uh, college boyfriend was a guy named Jerry. And um, we went out for about nine months. And then I dumped him for the guy that I had been cheating on him with, his weirdo friend, Steve. That didn't really sit very well with Jerry, but since we were both in the theater arts department and worked at the college pub together, we decided to try and stay friends. And for a few months, we were friends until he had the nerve to get another girlfriend named Jenny. In my mind, I thought it was okay that, you know, Steve and I would be a couple and that Jerry would pine for me forever. 
but he decided not to go along with that. Anyway, so one day after our shifts at the pub, we were on a bus bench, and he was talking about Jenny and his life with Jenny, and I was being especially nasty, making all kinds of snarky comments, and he slapped me. Yes, he slapped me. I got on the bus. I was so livid by the time I got home. I collected up all the letters that Jerry had sent me and all the gifts, except for Prince's 1999 album, because I'm not an idiot. And the next day, in true drama school fashion, returned them all to him with a big flourish. I immediately regretted it because even at 22, I knew, how many love letters am I going to get? Skip, skip, skip. Steve and I moved to Los Angeles. Jerry and Jenny marry and live in a big house off campus with a whole bunch of roommates. One of the roommates is my friend Paul. One day, Paul's looking for some batteries or a book or something, and he comes across a box of my letters. He calls me. I immediately tell him to steal them and bring them to me in Los Angeles, which he does. Among my letters is this letter. It was never mailed to me. I think it was one of those, like, write it out, and you'll feel a whole lot better. The interesting thing about this letter is that there are four copies of it in various states of legibility. So Jerry was somebody who enjoyed a nice cocktail now and then. So I don't know if he started out sober and with each copy of the letter got more and more wasted or the other way around. Because the letter and content are word for word. The last thing that I want to say is that Jerry and I are still friends and he would be thrilled that I'm reading this. <laughs> Dear Chris, hi, here is your letter. The one I'm writing you to tell you what's what and where I stand. The letter has been a long time coming, comma, I know. I could write to Steve sooner and earlier because Steve didn't tear me apart inside the way you did. I mean it, Chris. You hurt me so very much that, parentheses, though I know it appears otherwise, close parentheses, I'm still not over the pain. You took something as delicate and newborn as my emotions, my love for you, parentheses, and it was a real sort of love, though I felt a greater and more powerful love since that time, close parentheses, <laughs> and smashed it because you wanted to test it, or you didn't believe I really loved you, underline, I don't know. Steve merely fucked the girl I liked. And you said to me that you had told him it was off between you and, and I. And anyhow, besides, he didn't rape you, underline. You used him to hurt me. And, parentheses, help yourself. So what Steve did, I can forgive. What you did, I can only pity as the twisted workings of an unbalanced mental teen. You felt like I loved an image of you I had created in my heart, semicolon. You felt that I lied to you. When I said I loved you, if I lied, then why? For one mad instant on a late night, rain-spattered road, did I let go the steering wheel, step on the gas, and close my eyes and cry? For a fucking lark? No, I was devastated by your cruelty. Fortunately, God had other plans for me and made me open my eyes and take control after a bit. So I survived. Chris! 
not the person I was last year any more than you are the person you were last year. It must be easier for you to believe that I was desperate and wanted anyone and took you than the truth, which is that I loved you more than I had ever loved anybody. And when you suddenly, just before cherry orchard auditions, lost the first burst of attraction you'd felt for me, I fought to make you care for me. Over. But I wasn't the sort of guy you wanted me to be. Hmm? Who lives in a fantasy world? Fuck you. You caused me so much pain, and now you can't even be my friend because you believe that it means I don't want to be your friend unless I never love anyone again. Sorry. I love Jenny, and even if you can't accept that, that I can love her and still have once loved you, I guess we don't need to be friends. Grow up, Chris. You are rapidly losing friends because of your selfish, self-centered, and egocentric manner. Okay, this next part's a little complicated. You worry about others to the extent that you want to worry about them, but you don't really care about anyone but you. Underline. I think you are a mean, spoiled little bitch. Okay? Fuck off and die and leave me alone. I can be civil. But if you can't behave like a grown-up, then fine. Sit at home and mope with your fucking cats and cry self-pityingly tears and don't go anywhere I am. I wanted, after the initial pain had subsided, to be your friend. I like you, even now. But you can't relate to anyone who won't cater to your every whim. So die, bitch. Fuck you, Jerry. P.S. I don't care if your comments did or did not improve my dress sense and acting style. Anyone with any compassion and human sensitivity knows that it's rude and mean to constantly pick apart someone for any reason. Also, you, underlined, need an immense amount of growth if you ever hope to ever be a decent actress. Just a little comment to help you out on stage. How does it feel? Chris Sheets and Grant Pachoco improvise correspondence between Victorian crime solvers. Dear Bartholomew, oh my, I just had the most splendid pickle. It was so delicious. It reminded me of the time that you and I solved that case of the murderer who was brined. Remember that? Ooh, that was a pickle indeed. He, 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 he. I'm out here in Istanbul working on the crime that we are currently working on. You told me to follow the lead, and boy, I did. There is a man with a blue hat that every day appears outside my hotel. I think he may have something to do with it. By the way, could you send along my box of snuff? I seem to have forgotten it. Yours, Reginald. Dear Reginald. Ah, yes, of course, the man with the blue hat. You spoke of it before to me in a teletype uh, that I received a fortnight ago. Ah, yes, and pickles, I... I've just received the box you sent, albeit they were a bit dry. I do wonder when we will sh shall meet again. Hereto forthwith I do send in 
with my uh, greetings a picture of me. I'm standing next to a large cart filled with oranges. They just happen to be there. Oh, did you hear? My mother died. Hope this finds you well. Truly, Bartholomew. <laughs> Dear Bartholomew, oh yes, the teletype, your invention. I think someday it will go really well for you. You should probably patent it. You didn't look close enough at the picture with the oranges. You can see that there, behind the picture of the cart of oranges, behind the cart of oranges, is the man in the blue hat. The man we've been looking for all this time. If only you would have turned around, you would have seen him and caught him. Oh wait, I would have. Sorry, I'm drinking again. I'm really sorry about your mother. Thank you, and could you please send my box of snuff this time, not the pickles. The snuff. The snuff. We live in Victorian times. I cannot survive without my snuff. Yours, Reginald. Dear Bartholomew, oh, just a quick note to remind you that your friend is named Reginald. <laughs> Dear Reginald, <laughs> I thought the hat looked green in the picture because it's black and white. <laughs> Maybe that color photography that you're inventing <laughs> could be patented as well. Anyway, I was watching the television. New invention. <laughs> Don't tell anybody yet. And I noticed that there was a man that looked like he had a blue hat. Of course, I can't tell because it's black and white. Hey, my father died. Thanks. Goodbye. <laughs> Dear Bartholomew, oh, what a couple of days. I'm very sorry to read that your father died. It's very sad. It's very sad. Very, very sad. So this television, what's on it? Because it doesn't seem like there would be much on it. By the way, Where's my goddamn box of snuff? <laughs> I have been waiting. I am stuck in fucking Istanbul, and I have no snuff. Do you know what passes for snuff here? You don't want to know. Could you please send along that very long list of clues from the case that we're currently working on? I think there are about 16 of them. Thanks. Reginald. Oh, dear Reginald. Oh, Bartholomew, thanks. Next time, let's just keep with my nickname, Jack. <laughs> dear Reginald, here's the list of the 16 clues. First, 
a warm glass of water, a cigarette, that's two. Number three, a burrow with the nickname Ages. Four, a small piece of paper stuck to the underside of a shoe, enclosed see said shoe. Five, six, and seven. Just those numbers. <laughs> Eight, a cat. Nine, it's whiskers. 10, matchbook. 11, a woman, beautiful woman playing a guitar. 12, candles on tables. Sit around people with disturbed looks on their eyes. <laughs> And 17, <laughs> my committal papers. Dear Bartholomew, where the hell is my box of snuff? Baraka! Miss Julie Brown reads Match.com correspondence that is at once hilarious and frightening. Um, hi. Uh, I broke up with my boyfriend about two years ago, and then the end of last year, I thought, okay, I should be dating. And my friend said, okay, you have to do online dating. You have to do Match.com. And I was nervous about it, but I made a profile. And the first guy that started writing to me that I thought was sort of cute, he did have one of my red flags. He was a widower. And, I mean, I know that I shouldn't have anything against widowers because, you know, maybe his wife died and, you know, she was just sick or something. But I've seen so many Lifetime movies, I, I just thought maybe he poisoned her or cut her brake line. So I was sort of nervous about that, but he was, he was cute and he, right? I mean, come on, right? Um, and he, he was cute and he had a picture of him with his adorable daughter. And he was from Columbia, so I sort of excused the weird English in his emails. Okay. His name is Carlos. And I have to read with a little bit of an accent because he would. Hello, Julie. How are you doing? I am very happy to write you this email so that you can know about me. Hope you are doing great well. I am a very easygoing person. I am down to earth to find someone that will be special to me. I am a very simple and hardworking man. I have a daughter with me called Anita. I love her so much. She is my best friend and daughter. <laughs> well, I am a widower. I lost my wife some year back. I am into export and import trade. I buy and supply maize and cocoa beans. Cocoa bean is normally processed into cocoa liqueur, cocoa powder, and cocoa butter before it's made into chocolate food. Can you give me your number and we can chat? <laughs> now you'd think, okay, why would I write back? But he's, he was really cute. I mean, I figured, you know, Antonio Banderas probably didn't speak English that well when he first got to this country, right? And you wouldn't blow him off. Okay, so then I wrote back, I said, Hi, Carlos. You seem like a really sweet person, and it sounds like you're crazy about your daughter. If you're an importer of cocoa beans, does that mean you're actually visiting cocoa farms around the world? That must be really fun and so different than what I do. As I said, I'm in entertainment, and my family has been since the 1920s. My great-grandfather was an actor and director, and he was actually the lead juror in Reefer Madness. <laughs> He was, he was. Um, I love, I, I know, I know. Um, I love performing and writing, but when my son was little, I concentrated a lot on writing so I could be around him. I got divorced almost seven years ago, then dated someone else 
till last January, and I hadn't really been up for dating. That's why I just joined Match, Julie. So I gave him my phone number in that, and we talked on the phone, and the phone call was kind of weird because he really, really didn't speak English that well. And so, you know, you're talking to somebody and you're trying to make it be okay and it's, it's really not okay. And I'm, I'm trying to make sense out of what he's saying. Then suddenly he says to me, are you still on match.com? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, I think you should leave it because I'm a very jealous person. <laughs> I, I know. It's the first phone call. I'm like, okay, that, that's really weird. So I hung up. I thought, okay, this is not going to happen. But then the next day I got another email. Hello, my dear Julie. It is another wonderful day, and I was thinking about you, as usual. I want you to know how much I sincerely love the times we've spent talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Five-minute phone call. It means so much to me. I, I truly feel like I've known you forever, and I honestly can't imagine life without you now. The, <laughs> there will be no lack, looking back, no second thoughts, and no regrets. I want you and need you, and that love will only grow stronger. Do not be scared, my love. <laughs> All I can say is you're the best surprise life has given me, and your capacity for love, caring, and understanding never ceases to amaze me. I've truly been blessed by finding you, and I'll never let you go, even if I have to come with and live with you. <laughs> Carlos. Okay, now this was like freaking me out, you know, but this is my first time and I'm like, how do you blow someone off on Match.com? So, I mean, I didn't know how, right? So I wrote back to him, I go, Carlos, you seem like a very sincere person and since you told me how much you value honesty, I feel that I have to say I'm not ready for a serious relationship. I just got my son off to college and I'm only just thinking about dating. I don't remotely want to be in a serious relationship with another person and from your emails, you're in another place. So I don't think it's going to work out. I wish you well and hope you understand, Julie. Then I get, my dearest Julie, thanks for the email. I understand all what you said, but what do you mean I am in another place? I want you to understand that even any dating start from a step. It's not what we rush into. I know you have a good heart, and the next time you think you don't measure up, remember, Albert Einstein's parents and teachers thought he was retarded. <laughs> He couldn't speak until he was nine years old. He couldn't tie his shoes. A teacher in Munich wrote in his school report, you will never amount to very much. This just goes to show that no one is perfect and that you can go far if you try. The key is believing in yourself, even when others don't. Be a woman of substance. Be a real woman. When you're doubting, open up to your heart, not your ears or your brain. Your heart will always lead you the right way because it is never wrong. Carlos. Okay, so I didn't respond because I'm like, what is wrong with him? And I got a bunch more, you know, emails. And then finally, then I got another one. He said, dearest Julie, I am really missing you today. Tried calling your phone, but to no avail. So I left a voicemail. Just one encounter with your voice makes me love you more and more. And these words are meant to do what my voice whispering in your ear, the things I would like to say and you like to hear would. You're the most gorgeous lady in the whole world, though we haven't met. When I'm thinking of meeting you, I feel your enchanting tenderness and feel like you were created to put a spell on me. The days are too long, the nights too sad when I'm far away from you. Your absence is my only evil. You wouldn't believe the distress I've been bearing these days. Sometimes I become so anxious, no one with me can stand me at all. <laughs> Hope to hear from you soonest. <laughs> 
<laughs> so this was really freaking me out because I'm going, oh my God, what if he looks me up on Facebook or Twitter and I'm going to perform and he's going to show up there? I mean, like, I, I just really, he could be here right now, right? <laughs> I, I just didn't know. So I thought, I really have to get rid of this guy. So I have to crank up my letter. And this is the letter I wrote to him. Carlos, I wanted you to know that I took my Match.com profile down because as I said before, I can't handle dating or relationship right now. I had a pretty bad divorce a while ago and had an emotional breakdown because of it, and I had to go on medication. And not Prozac. What I'm on is much stronger, but with much less side effects, although sometimes it makes my vagina very dry. <laughs> and now the thought of being in a relationship gives me so much anxiety. I am not ready! capital for this. I'm still dealing with the courts concerning some illegal things I did during my last relationship. <laughs> I was so jealous of my boyfriend, I set fire to his Ford Explorer. So, as you can see, dating is not something I should be doing right now. Please don't email or text or call again. I'm not mentally stable enough for this. Julie. <laughs> Finally, he stopped. <laughs> my name is Jane Entwistle and I read an impassioned letter to Summer's Eve, and I sure hope they're listening. Dear Summer's Eve, <laughs> Thank you for inviting me to audition for your campaign. Rarely do I thank my lucky stars that I did not get the job. Looking to the heavens, audibly acknowledging divine providence for saving me from that which I need to be saved. There have been times when divine providence could have spoken a little louder, as is the case with my brief appearance as a chicken in a film with Ron Jeremy. It's another letter. But in this case, you were heard loud and clear. When presented with the script at the audition, I did look from left to right and behind the potted plant to see if I was on candid camera. I did ask the woman seated in the waiting room, are they fucking serious? to which she solemnly nodded assent. I read, reread, and then read once more the copy before me. Yes, I was to read for the part of vagina. <laughs> Described as hip and sassy. <laughs> Salty in tone. No, I added in that last part. So, but hip and sassy, yes. I debated running, but professional pride kept me in check. Adding insult to injury was the veritable Sasquatch assigned to run the auditions. He emerged from the sound booth like a walking mountain covered in fur. Where beard started and hair suit ended, one could not tell. I positioned myself in front of the microphone. Man-shaped sat squirreled away in his booth, his voice purring in my headphones, too close and intimate for an audition about vaginas. <laughs> Go ahead and give it a shot, he said. Okay. Hello from vagina land. <laughs> hold it, hold it, mountain man growled. Look. It's like you're talking to your best friend. You gotta get a little smoky with it. I'm sorry, I've never played a vagina before. Um, I mean, obviously I have one, but I've never uh, uh, heard it talk. It's cool, it's cool. 
Sometimes the only way to get to the other side of something is to take a deep breath, surrender, and pray for the best. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. Listen, we need to talk. I've tried giving you subtle hints, but no. You keep ignoring me. Not cool, sister. You and me should be BFFs. You take care of me, I take care of you. You know, like sidekicks. I'm not asking for much. Just a little attention in the shower with some pH balance cleansing wash. I'm not talking Brazilian or vajazzling. Just a little love for your vertical smile. No amount of pH balance cleansing wash could remove the indelible stain left behind by that audition. I did not think you could fall any lower, Summer's Eve, until I saw the actual campaign. You used talking hands to represent the vagina. Mm -hmm. You had an African-American hand with a decidedly urban voice an Asian hand, and a Hispanic hand who started off her plea with, ay 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 <laughs> Seriously, YouTube it. The white hand talked about going to the gym. The black hand commented on her owner's obsession with changing her hairstyle. And the Latina hand talked about popping out kids. Your commercials created a shitstorm, and your general response was to sit back and gleefully welcome the derision, embracing the all press is good press edict. Perhaps in terms of dollar and press, you succeeded. But in that big picture, where consciousness and dignity are worth far, far more, your failure registers as a very large deficit. My vertical smile thinks you are a douche. <laughs> Sincerely, Jane, a strident non-customer. You have been listening to To Whom It May Concern, produced by Jane Entwistle and Justin Crane, and recorded live at the Lyric Hyperion Theater and Cafe in Silver Lake, California. The musician for this episode was Jesse Payo. I've been in hiding, Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a single letter. Follow us on Twitter at The Letter Show and visit us on the web at readyourletter.com. If you have a letter you'd like to submit, whether you live near or far, or you just want to say hi, visit readyourletter.com. And you're a man Go find a 